I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we take what the Bible says seriously as we examine its pages. Here in the midst of Deuteronomy, we find ourselves encountering a whole slew of laws, chapter after chapter of instructions on how to live our lives. And once again, as modern Westerners, our eyes gloss over and we tend to disconnect. Most of what we are reading here has been stated before. The majority of the line items are repeats from previous books. And so we check out, we reach out in search of something more entertaining, uh, the more entertaining parts of scripture or even elsewhere, because the greatest sin of the modern world is boredom. But here in Deuteronomy, we get a fascinating insight into the ancient ideal of law, because ancient law is not a hard and fast set of rules that are to be followed without question. Ancient law is a medium that is designed to get our thoughts working. It is to cause us to meditate on the ideas that are represented by the law, and then to carry those ideas into our own lives. And Deuteronomy gives us the template for just how to engage in this exercise, because as we have seen for the last several weeks, the commands that are given here in this book are direct extrapolations of the Ten Words, or the Ten Commandments. With the first word, I am Hashem, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, we read a six-chapter discussion on just what this idea means for the people of Israel on the east side of the Jordan. And we found in this discussion the clearest and the most concise Old Testament retelling of the gospel and the relationship that is created when we enter into the covenant that is expressed in the gospel. Then, in chapter 12, the text shifted from an extrapolation of the first command to an expansion of the second. Do not make graven images to bow before them and to serve them. And as we encountered this in expanded form, we saw that this idea included not just don't bow down to the graven images, but destroy the places and the things of this form of idol worship in your midst. And when God says don't create an image and bow down to it, this also means don't worship him in any way that has not been directly approved by him. For ancient Israel, this looked like not sacrificing just anywhere, and placing the place where the altar is located as the central place of worship for all of Israel. And this provides a bit of guidance for us to meditate on and then apply into our modern lives when we don't have a literal temple or an altar. Chapter 13-14 through 14 then expanded the third word, do not take Hashem's name in vain. And as we dug into the ideas that are encompassed by this, we discovered that the word is primarily about claiming to worship Hashem and then acting in a way that is contrary to his character. And chapter 13 was primarily in regards to recognizing those in your midst who claimed the image, power, or word of Hashem, who were acting contrary to those ideals and removing them from your midst protecting the image of Hashem by not associating with those who would bring shame on his name or draw others away from him. 
And then in chapter 14, it gave us some concrete things that we could do to walk out. Things like discernment of clean and unclean and something as foundational as in our lives and something as foundational to our lives as our diet. Or setting aside money so that you can celebrate at the time of the commanded festivals. Or so that you can give freely to the vulnerable so that they can celebrate as well. And this week, we come to the fourth command. Deuteronomy 5, 12-15 Guard the Sabbath day. Set it apart as Hashem your God commanded you. Six days you labor and shall do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of Hashem your God. You do not do any work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who was within your gates, so that your male servant and your female servant rest as you do. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that Hashem your God brought you out from there by a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore Hashem your God commanded you to perform the Sabbath day. The one word of the ten that many Christians hold as unnecessary or changed because it's not explicitly reiterated in the New Testament. A word that simply doesn't fit well with our modern lives. But as we're going to see, the Sabbath command is one that is representative of a principle that's much deeper than simply a day off work. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 15 and let's read through chapter 16, verse 17. Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 16, 17. At the end of every seven years, you make a release of debts. And this is the word of the release. Every creditor is to release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He does not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is called the release of Hashem. Of a foreigner, you could require it, but your hand is to release whatever is owed by your brother. Only there should be no poor among you. For Hashem does greatly bless you in the land which Hashem your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. Only if you diligently obey the voice of Hashem your God to guard, to do all these commands which I am commanding you today. For Hashem your God shall bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they do not rule over you. When there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, within any of the gates in your land which Hashem your God is giving you, do not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. For you shall certainly open your hand to him, and certainly lend him enough for his needs, whatever he needs. Be on guard, lest there be a thought of Belial in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is near, and your eye is evil against your poor brother, and you give him not. And he shall cry out to Hashem against you, and it shall be sin in you. You shall certainly give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this reason Hashem your God does bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand, because the poor one does not cease from the land. Therefore I am commanding you, saying, You shall certainly open your hand to your brother, to your poor, and to your needy one in your land. When your brother is sold to you, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, and shall serve you six years, then you let him go free from you in the seventh year. And when you send him away free from you, let him not go away empty-handed. You shall richly supply him from your flock, and from your threshing floor, and from your winepress, with that which Hashem has blessed you with, give to him. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Mitzrayim, and Hashem your God ransomed you. Therefore I am commanding you this word today. And it shall be when he says to you, I do not go away from you, because he loves you in your house, because it is good for him with you. Then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Do the same for your female servant. 
Let it not be hard in your eyes when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years, and Hashem your God shall bless you in all that you do. Set apart to Hashem your God all the firstborn males that come from your herd and from your flock. Do not work with the firstborn of your herd nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household are to eat it before Hashem your God, year by year in the place which Hashem chooses. But when there is any defect in it, lame or blind or has an evil defect, do not sacrifice it to Hashem your God. Eat it within your gates, the unclean and the clean alike, as the gazelle and as the deer. Only do not eat its blood, poured on the ground like water. Guard the new moon of Aviv. Perform the Pesach to Hashem your God in the new moon of Aviv. Hashem your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall sacrifice the Pesach to Hashem your God, from the flock and from the herd in the place where Hashem chooses to put his name. Eat no leavened bread with it. For seven days you eat unleavened bread with it, bread of affliction, because you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, so that you remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven should be seen with you in all your border for seven days. Neither should any of the meat which you sacrifice in the evening on the first day stay all night until morning. You are not allowed to sacrifice the Pesach within any of your gates which Hashem your God gives you. But at the place where Hashem your God chooses to make his name dwell, there you sacrifice the Pesach in the evening, at the going down of the sun, at the appointed time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which Hashem your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there is a closing festival to Hashem your God. You do no work. Count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. And you shall perform the festival of Shavuot to Hashem your God, according to the voluntary offerings from your hand, which you give as Hashem your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before Hashem your God, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are in your midst, at the place where Hashem your God chooses to make his name dwell. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall guard and do all these laws. Perform the festival of Sukkot for seven days, after the ingathering from your threshing floor and from your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your festival, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. For seven days you shall celebrate to Hashem your God in the place which Hashem chooses, because Hashem your God does bless you in all your increasing and in all the work of your hands, and you shall be only rejoicing. Three times a year all your males are to appear before Hashem your God in the place which he chooses, at the festival of Matzot, at the festival of Shavuot, and at the festival of Sukkot, and none should appear before Hashem empty-handed. But each one of you with the gifts of his hand according to the blessing of Hashem your God which he has given you. If we were to compare the giving of the ten words as told of in Exodus and then as told of here in Deuteronomy, we would notice a difference. Now, every one of the ten words is repeated verbatim between the two, with one exception, and that is the fourth command. In Exodus, the fourth command takes this form, Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to set it apart. Six days you labor and shall do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Hashem your God. You do not do any work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days Hashem made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Hashem blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart. 
So let's compare these for a moment and see if we can discern the reason for this difference in this one ideal. First off, the first word of the fourth word, or the first word of the fourth commandment, is different. In Exodus, we are told to remember the Sabbath day. Once again, I feel the the need to remind you that in biblical Hebrew, the word remember, it is an active word. This word could just as easily be translated as memorialize the Sabbath day. Do something with this memory. Don't just let it pop into your head. But here in Deuteronomy, we read that we are to guard the Sabbath day, shamar. This is a word that's often translated as keep in many places. But once again, this word goes beyond simple rote action. It is to guard everything that is contained within the ideal, to protect it. And there is something profound here in this difference. In Exodus, we use the word remember, which for us is a word that bears no action, but is meditative. But the Hebrew adds an active component of doing something with this remembrance. In Deuteronomy, we find the word guard or keep, which for us is a word that is all action. But the Hebrew adds an inactive and meditative component to the idea. And we find in this that the Sabbath is to be approached in both ways, actively and meditatively. And the two instances of this command, they then provide the foundation for approaching the Sabbath in both ways, the other differences that we will find as we compare them. And that further difference is found in the reason for the command. In Exodus, the reason for this word is a meditative reason. For in six days Hashem made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And therefore Hashem blessed the seventh day and set it apart. Meditate on this idea of God as creator and just how we can live in his image by doing the same thing. Take this break from your acts of creation and rest, because Hashem did the same. And in this, we actually find a connection to the previous command of not bearing the name in vain. The Sabbath tells people about which God we serve, the God of creation. But there's something else fascinating going on in this. In Exodus 20.14, which we read, it states that God rested on the seventh day. Now, usually we would assume that this is the word Shabbat, as this is the word used in Genesis 2.1 to describe what God did on the seventh day, but it is not. The word used in Exodus 20 verse 14 that's translated as rest is the word Nuach, the root of the name Noah, rest or comfort. Genesis 5.29, and they called his name Noah, saying, this one does comfort us or give us rest concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which Hashem has cursed. Now, if we turn to Psalm 132, we find the noun form of this word used twice in this psalm as a place to rest. And in this, we discover something that informs us of how we are to approach the Sabbath in our own lives. Psalm 132, 7-8. Let us go into his dwelling places. Let us bow ourselves at his footstool. Arise, O Hashem, to your place of rest, you and the ark of your strength. And Psalm 132, verses 13 through 14. For Hashem has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my place of rest forever. Here I dwell, for I have desired it. Now, if we consider the entire Psalm 132, we recognize it is a psalm of enthronement. The language of rest that's used here is the language of a king ascending to his throne at rest from all of the enemies who are around. This king at rest, he's conquered his enemies and is in a place to now enjoy his kingdom and his rule. 
And that's one of the things that the creation account of Genesis is meant to describe. A seven-day period. Think of it as a, a temple and sanctification rituals that are described throughout Leviticus and Exodus, in which all enemies are subdued and order is achieved. And then on the seventh day, the king ascends to his throne to rule over the kingdom that he has created and to which he has brought peace. And when we see the Sabbath related in this way and our own role then as vassals to our suzerain, what can we understand from our own participation in the Sabbath? The Sabbath is part of our own kingly role in the world. It's a day to reign over the areas of life that God has given us in peace. But that was Exodus. So let's return here to Deuteronomy. And how does Deuteronomy steep the reason for keeping the Sabbath day in chapter 5, verse 15? It says, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that Hashem your God brought you out from there by a strong hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, Hashem your God commanded you to perform the Sabbath day. You were slaves, and Hashem ended your slavery. He gave you rest from your oppressors by actively engaging the enemy in order to bring peace. And so you are to enjoy this day of rest because it is a slave that works every day without rest. And you, you're no longer a slave. So how interesting is it that when we turn to Deuteronomy 15, it is the rest and the release of the seventh year that's highlighted first as an expansion of the Sabbath ideal. Not just one day in seven rest from work, but a one year in seven release from service. Freedom for the slave. Now, back in Leviticus, we read of a one year and seven cessation from working the land and the release of a person who was serving time as an indentured servant to pay off a debt that he had incurred but had not been able to repay. But here, we read of a release of all the debts. Anyone who owes anything to anyone else is to have their debt released and forgiven, and the economic situation is to be set back to a level playing field. Every seven years, the economy based on debt is to be reset. But this only applies for people who are part of the kingdom. For foreigners, those who are not part of the kingdom, you can continue to require the debt. And it is a thought of Belial, it's a worthless, profitless, or wicked thought that says, I will not give to this person because I will not be paid back. This is a principle that gets laid out here in Deuteronomy, but is then expounded on by Yeshua in the Gospels, Luke 6, 30-36. And give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away what is yours, do not ask it back. And as you wish men should do to you, you also do to them in the same way. And if you love those loving you, what favor have you? For sinners too love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what favor have you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive back, what favor have you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. Rather, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward shall be great. And you shall be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the thankless and the wicked ones. Therefore, be compassionate, as your Father also is compassionate. This is a principle that did not start with Yeshua, but which had been with Israel since its formation as a nation. Do not give to others in order to gain. 
Do not lend at interest, and don't refuse to lend or give simply because you know that there is a time coming which will prevent you from receiving it in return. God gives good to all, to the wicked, to the righteous, to the thankless. He gives rain and food, so give like him in his image. And while Deuteronomy gives the allowance to treat the wicked the same, we find that when Yeshua expands on this command in the Sermon on the Mount, he does so in a way that actually gets to the heart of the matter. Matthew five forty four through 46 But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those cursing you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those insulting you and persecuting you, so that you become sons of your Father in the heavens. Because he makes his sun to rise on the wicked and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those loving you, what reward have you? Are the tax collectors not doing the same too? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Are the tax collectors not doing so too? Love those who hate you. Yes, even lend to the foreigner, knowing that you may not get paid back. Make a deal with them, but if they don't repay, let it go for the sake of the kingdom. We who live in the image of the Most High God should act as He does. He gives tangible gifts to those who are his enemies, the same as he does for those who are his completely. Don't withhold kindness. Give freely. Give abundantly. You will be rewarded for such generosity, even if you never see a dime in return. Moving on in verse 12 through 16, we read of the release of the servant in the seventh year, the one who was working off the debt that he owed. When he is released, the master is to richly reward the servant with goods upon his release. He is not to be sent out from his service empty-handed. Or you are just setting him up for failure and dooming him to an eternity of this sort of service. And what is the reason given for giving your servant goods as you send him out from your house? Verse 15, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Hashem your God ransomed you. Therefore, I am commanding you this word today. Same reason that was given in Deuteronomy 5 as the reason for why we should keep the Sabbath. But it goes beyond that. If you remember back to Exodus in chapter 12, as Israel was going out, the Egyptians gave them goods as they were being set free. So as a slave owner, as a servant owner who is letting the servant go free, you too are to act likewise. But if the man wishes to live this life of service, then he can. He can become your servant permanently. Otherwise, set him free and don't let it be a hard thing for you to do, because if you had simply hired him as a day laborer, you would not have gotten near as much benefit for him. He's been with you for six years, and he has been a blessing to you, so be a blessing to him at his time of release. Then in verse 19 through the end of chapter 15, we read once again about sanctifying the firstborn of the herd and the flock. If it is whole, bring it to the tabernacle or the temple and eat it there with Hashem as a fellowship offering. But if it has a defect, then eat it at home and don't bring it as a sacrifice, but still use this firstborn as a means of fellowshipping with those around you. Now the question might come up, what does this have to do with the Sabbath? And to answer this, we have to go elsewhere. And guess what? This topic is also addressed in Leviticus 22. Hmm. Leviticus 22. 
the chapter just before the chapter on the holy days. Coincidence? So let's see what Leviticus 22 has to say on this subject. Leviticus 22, verse 27. When a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day and thereafter it is acceptable as an offering made by fire to Hashem. There is a Sabbath that is required, a seven-day waiting period for a young animal to be with its mother after it is born. Only after the seven-day period can it be offered as a sacrifice. Now, does this mean exactly eight days later you must sacrifice the firstborn of the flock in the herd? Not at all. Remember, the animal has to be brought to the tabernacle or the temple to be sacrificed. And for most of the nation, there were three times in the year when they would go to the tabernacle and the temple anyway. They wouldn't have been required to make a special trip for the firstborn every time one of their cattle had a baby. Now, if there were three firstborn cows in a season from various mothers, then they didn't make three special trips. Besides, those who lived in the far north were more than eight days from Jerusalem. They could not time their travel so perfectly. Instead, the farmer would save up the firstborn of the flocks and the herds and take them with them when the next pilgrimage festival occurred. And the animal would then be incorporated into the meal of their festival celebration. And so in two different ways, this little aside about the firstborn sacrifice fits perfectly within the Sabbath discussion. Wait at least seven days before you sacrifice the animal, but then bring it with you to the yearly Sabbath festivals, which Deuteronomy is getting ready to dive into. Now, in Leviticus 23, we read of seven yearly festivals, or Moedim, appointed times, that are to be celebrated throughout the year. But when we turn here to Deuteronomy 16, we only read of three festivals. Why is that? Well, the reason is that here in Deuteronomy, we are being told only about the Chag festivals. The Chag festivals are the pilgrimage festivals, the festivals where everyone was expected to travel to Jerusalem, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. The other festivals, they weren't required to travel. And each of these festivals is an expression of the number seven. Passover begins on the 14th day of the first month and is then followed by a seven-day festival of matzah. The date for Shavuot is arrived at by counting seven days, seven times, and then celebrating on the day after the count has been completed. Sukkot begins on the 14th day of the seventh month, and it lasts for seven days with an eighth-day celebration then added to the end. Each of these festivals is wrapped completely in the number seven, and each is a celebration which expected all males from the entire nation to travel to the place where Hashem's name was placed. That place that we were told of just a few chapters back in connection to sacrifice. That place that changed the location from time to time until the temple was built, and then which went away and then returned and then went away again to be dispersed around the world as history progressed. So let's spend some time going through these three festivals as described here in Deuteronomy, and then we'll close by bringing together all of these Sabbath ideals. So the first Chag festival is the festival of Pesach, the Passover, and then the attached festival of Matzah. And why do we celebrate the Passover? Because it was at this time of year that you were brought out of Egypt and that you were given freedom from slavery. And why do we eat matzah for seven days? Because we were brought out of Egypt in haste. 
The Passover is a commanded holiday that is directly tied to the events that are given here in Deuteronomy as the reason for keeping the Sabbath. And the Pesach sacrifice? Yeah, it's like other sacrifices in that you aren't to sacrifice it in your home or in your town, but you are to bring it to the place of Hashem's name for sacrifice. But verse 7 has something interesting in it that should really cause us all to slow down a bit and consider. Deuteronomy 16.7 And you shall roast and eat it in the place which Hashem your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. We are told here that you shall, my translation says, roast the sacrifice. But there's a problem here. The word that is translated as roast or cook is not the word for roast at all. It's the word commonly translated as boil, bashal. And that introduces a problem that translators have had to deal with in their translation. In Exodus 12, at the first Passover, Israel is told not to eat the Passover raw or bashal it in water, but to roast the lamb. Exodus 12.9 Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire its head with its legs and its inward parts. Do not bashal, but tzali. Do not boil, but roast. And then here in Deuteronomy, then, the people are told to bashal their Passover sacrifice. Do you see the potential issue here? This is a seeming contradiction, and so several methods have been introduced to soothe away this seeming contradiction. First way of soothing this over is to simply ignore the word bashal, as my translation attempts to do, which, for a translation that prides itself on consistently translating words, it's rather disappointing. Rather than admitting that the word here is bashal, or going with the other means of translating this passage, which we're going to talk about in a minute, my translation just ignores the word bashal and imposes the word roast as it's found in Exodus 12. And we find these words in opposition in another place, roasting being placed in opposition to the word bashal. 1 Samuel 2.15 Also, they burned the fat. The priest's servants would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he does not accept bashaled meat from you, but raw. I will not accept boiled meat, but if we examine how the meat was cooked in the tabernacle, we will discover that it was boiled. And indeed, the word bashal is used to describe this. So he's saying, I will not accept boiled meat. Give me raw meat so that we can roast it. Personally, I think this is the worst way to handle this issue. To simply ignore this potential controversy by mistranslating the word as something else, uh, just it glosses over and causes many to say there is a contradiction here. The second way that translators handle this word is to say that the word bashal can be used in general for cooking, just cook something in no particular way. And if we look at every occurrence of this word in scripture, and then there are a couple places that this would seem to uphold this translation. 2 Samuel 13 verse 8, So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house while she was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it, and she made cakes before his eyes, and she baked the cakes. She baked the cakes. She bashalled them. Okay, this work seems to work here, because you don't boil cakes, or do you? I mean, it was from the Jews that we get bagels, right? And what's one important step in bagel making that makes it different than regular bread? Well, they are boiled before they're baked. 
Perhaps she did boil a cake and make some sort of proto-bagel for Amnon. Uh, But there's this also then. Numbers 11, verse 8. The people went about and they gathered it, ground it on millstones or beat it with mortar, and cooked it in a pot and made cakes of it. And its taste was the taste of cakes baked with oil. They beshawled it in a pot and made cakes of it. Now, the word for cake that's used here is a word that's used for a round of bread that's cooked in the hearth. It's a round flat of dough that would be stuck to the side of the fireplace and baked in place. So perhaps this word can simply be translated as cook in general. Let's not forget that Hebrew is a language of context, so its usage will determine its meaning. The final way to handle this is to allow the word to be what it is. According to Strong's lexicon, not Strong's concordance, please don't get those two mixed up, the word bashal has the following meaning. It's a primitive root, properly to boil up, hence to be done in cooking, figuratively to ripen, to bake, boil, bring forth, to be ripe, to seethe, or to sod, or be sodden. That's another word for getting it wet. So this word is a root word, and it means to boil up. But this word can also be used figuratively to mean ripe. But its usage is limited to grapes, so ripe grapes. Bunches that make a field look like it's boiling. But even though the word means most literally to boil, we discover when we examine our world, some things, when they finish cooking, can look like they're boiling. So it can apply in these cases, such as in the cases of bread, where bubbles begin to form on the bread. And this can also apply in the case of meat that's being cooked over an open fire. Because when it gets hot, the juices of the meat, they'll boil on the surface of the meat. So translating simply as cooked is probably the best solution, but it's not the only solution. So what does it mean if this word means boil, and Moses is telling Israel to boil their Passover lamb? Is there a contradiction? Well, we've already seen once before that Deuteronomy has changed the instruction about bringing all sacrificial animals to the altar, even if you just want to eat it. Is there perhaps something going on here with another change occurring? Well, Exodus 12 dealt with people who were in a hurry and headed out of Israel, but this instruction here in Deuteronomy is an acknowledgement that this event is different than the first. Perhaps in later generations, the boiling of the Passover was a recognition of this event being a memorialization and not an actual Passover. The same way that no one eats the Passover with his staff in hand and in a rush, as Exodus 12 says that we are to do. Or is this just Moses being an ancient idiot and not being precise and a bit confused in his language? The fact is that I've heard all of these taught before. There is a contradiction in Scripture. Well, you see, Moses is being imprecise in his language, like some sort of idiot Bronze Age human, and so we can't really trust anything that he says, because we see here that he obviously he, he, he made a mistake. Or this signifies that later Passovers are a memorial because they're boiled, whereas the previous were not. Or we can simply allow language to be what it is and recognize that the word Bashal can, in fact, mean to cook meat over an open fire. And when an animal is cooked in this way and the juices boil out of the animal and a cake when cooked will boil up and grow to fill space like a boiling water does in a pot. In my opinion, the second option is the best way to understand this. The word bashal does mean to boil in its most strict sense, but it does not only mean boil. 
It means to cook to completion as well. And the proof for this argument, the clincher, 2 Chronicles 35, 13. So they roasted the Pesach with fire according to the judgment, and they boiled the holy offerings in pots and in cauldrons and in bowls, and they brought them speedily to all the lay people. Again, my translation goes with roasted, even though that's not what's said in the verse. Cooked works just as well, even if the experience is the same. The same verb is used twice in this passage as ways of preparing meat. They bashalled over open fire, and they bashalled in pots. So through those who look to the Torah as being inconsistent, or Moses as being imprecise or ignorant, or who look at this command as being one of those places where the command was legitimately changed, uh, frankly, look elsewhere. The majority of translations got this right. There is no contradiction. This word can simply mean to cook and can be applied in situations where the cooking process looks like something is boiling. And to those who seek to simply ignore the issue, there is no need. We can be consistent and accurate while treating the text as adults. We can translate it as cook rather than roast, and we could use it in all instances. Moving on, the text then shifts to the celebration of Shavuot. Uh, With this festival, we are given instructions on how to count once again. Count seven weeks from the time that you put the sickle to the grain. Not from the first fruit offering, as Leviticus 23 puts it, rather from the time that you put the sickle to the grain. Now, with Shavuot, there is no sacrifice that is required of any individual like there is at Passover. Instead, verse 10 speaks of a voluntary sacrifice that is to be given at the time of Shavuot. And in verse 11 through 12, once again, we see this festival connected to the Sabbath command, not through the numbers associated with it, but rather through the recounting of who all is to participate in these festivals in verse 11 and in verse 12, through the remembrance that you were once slaves in Egypt, but no more. And then finally, in the festival of Sukkot, we read nearly the same list of who is to participate. But this time, there is nothing in this command about having once been a slave. Instead, the reason for this festival is that this is to be a celebration of Hashem's blessing and the increase that He brings to the work of your hands. And if we consider this, this is the description of how the Master is to treat the recently released slave. Bless him abundantly because he has brought you much increase. And This is where we find the connection to Sabbath beyond the number of days that are part of the holiday. Sukkot is the time at the end of the harvest cycle, after every crop has come in, where Israel is to sit back and relax and enjoy the increase and the benefit that's been gained by the year's labor. The Sabbath of the harvest has arrived, the harvest festival. This is the time to sit back and enjoy the fruits of the previous six months of labor in the field. Sukkot is a time of celebration and relaxation and enjoyment, as this is the only holiday where everyone was to stay in the place of God's name for the entire week. With Passover, they only had to celebrate the Passover in the place of God's name. As chapter 16, verse 7 states, eat it in the place that Hashem your God chooses, and in the morning you can return to your tents. It's an idiom saying you can go home. Only the first day of matzah need to be spent in the place of the tabernacle or the temple. But with Sukkot, the entirety of the holiday was to be spent there. 
And in verse 16, we are reminded that at these three times a year, everyone is to assemble before Hashem. And when they do, they should not appear empty-handed. Everyone is to come with a gift in their hand according to how much Hashem has blessed them. And so with this, let's take a step back and let's examine the Sabbath in greater detail. Earlier, I mentioned that the majority of Christians don't recognize the Sabbath as a legitimate and ongoing command. And there are a number of reasons for this, including that there is no specific reiteration of the Sabbath command in the New Testament. But the fact is that the New Testament time, the initial audience, the Sabbath was one of those commands that was simply implied. It didn't need to be repeated. In fact, we find several locations where Sabbath observance occurred, and it was even expected of new believers. Now, Acts 15 is one of those places that Christians will turn to in order to demonstrate that the entirety of the Torah is not needed for salvation. Uh, None of the Torah is needed for salvation, but that's beside the point. Acts 15, 19-20 Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the nations who are turning to God, but that we should write to them to abstain from the defilement of idols, and from whoring, and from that which is strangled, and from blood. See, this is all that needs to be done to be saved. But this is a misnomer. This is all that is needed for a person to enter into the community, not for salvation. But if we continue to discover that these four items were settled on for a particular reason, verse 21, For from ancient generations Moses has in every city those proclaiming him, being read in the congregations every Sabbath. The expectation of new believers was that they would demonstrate this change in their life by accomplishing these four items at a minimum, and then they would engage in a local community and begin to learn about Moses and the assembly of believers when he was taught on the Sabbath. And this implies that part of Sabbath observance is Sabbath attendance at a local community. Sabbath observance was so pervasive among early believers that there was no need to reiterate the command to new believers. It it simply was. And then if we turn to Hebrews 4, we find another location that speaks of the ongoing nature of the Sabbath and its applicability for all believers. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. So then there remains a Sabbath keeping. The word there in the Greek is Sabbath keeping, not Sabbath rest, as many translations will translate it. So then there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now in the grander scope, this verse is addressing the idea that it was Joshua who gave the people the Sabbath rest that was in the land. But the author demonstrates that this is not the case, since David warns, of not being allowed to enter into the rest in the Psalms long after Joshua. And so there remains a rest in the future that we can look forward to entering into, and that we can fail to enter into through our own disobedience towards God and His Word. This verse is much more than simply a command to keep the Sabbath. It is a pointer to the greater truth that the Sabbath also points to. That final rest that we can enter into through faith and obedience. And this is the Sabbath that this Parsha speaks of. It is a Sabbath of redemption and release from bondage. 
to freedom from slavery and a canceling of our debt, a firstborn sacrifice that opens the path to fellowship with the Most High God, a sacrifice that occurred on the Passover, was expanded to all classes, nations, and people on Shavuot, and reaches its fulfillment in the kingdom at Sukkot. It's the Sabbath, while being a weekly day off from our labors and an opportunity to sit back and enjoy the fruit of our labors, to rule as kings over the slice of earth that God has given us to reign over. But more than that, Sabbath is the physical expression of the spiritual reality that has been realized by our Messiah. He worked on our behalf, and so we can rest from our labors. We don't need to work to gain redemption and rest. There is a Sabbath-keeping that we can participate in holistically, physically in our weekly and yearly Sabbaths, and one day we will enter into a true expression of Sabbath in all of creation. But it's also a Sabbath that can be meditated on and experienced spiritually as well. Even now, the spiritual ongoing rest of the Sabbath is ours, that release and redemption from the slavery of the flesh and the knowledge that God has accomplished the work to bring us from these things. He brought freedom and life. He broke the chains that is holding us back, and we can experience life lived abundantly. This is the greatest realization of the Sabbath in our lives. Not just a weekly practice of the joining together of the body of Messiah in unity, but the spiritual reality of rest and salvation, a work that has been accomplished by God on our behalf and that we now simply need to enter into and enjoy. Because it is in this rest that we get our greatest experience of life as intended by God. It is a part of creation. It is a part of the rhythms of life. So continue to seek life and then to live it out into the world. Dereshchai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.